Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Okay, as leaders, all of us want teams that speak up, tell the truth, say what's on their minds, and challenge each other. Of course, that's how we get the best of ideas. And Google has been popularized some research that they did into their most productive teams and find that, among other things, teams with psychological safety outperform others. Now, that means where it's safe to tell the truth and speak up and challenge each other. Now, I don't think the vast majority of leaders intend ever to create fear in their teams, but I can tell you fear is still everywhere. And I'm giving you an example. I was recently working with a top team on an offsite, and we had a very constructive conversation throughout the course of a day, and there was good camaraderie among the team members, and the team assured me that they were really very comfortable with having debate and even with disagreeing with each other, and that that was sort of part of their mantra. However, at the end of the day, I found out that there was an issue no one was willing to raise. Now, we just spent a day on the effectiveness, and no one's willing to even raise the topic. Why? Quote, it didn't feel safe to do so. They were afraid of the consequences, unquote. And I can promise you that this was not the intention of the leader. In fact, it was quite the opposite. I don't think this is unusual. In fact, I think that could be any team I'm working with almost any day in any country in the world. So why? Why are we having this with teams in spite of the intention of leaders? And more importantly, what do we do about it? With me today is Amy Edmondson. Amy is a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School, and she's been recognized by the Thinker 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers. She was honored with a Talent Award in 2017, and she's written a copious number of books, Teaming, How Organizations Learn, Innovate, and Compete in the Knowledge Economy, as well as Teaming to Innovate and Extreme Teaming, all are around teamwork and the dynamic organizational environments we find ourselves in. There are more books. But the one I want to focus on today is called The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Who can complain with that as a key topic? So, Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. Thank you. And this is such an important topic, as I think I just alluded to in the beginning. Everybody wants this psychological safety and honesty and truthfulness and so on, yet we fall so far short of it. So before we get into the why and the how, Mm. tell me about the book. Why did you write this book, Fearless Organization? Well, you know, I had been studying psychological safety in the workplace for over 20 years, not not as the only topic. As you alluded to earlier, I've been studying teaming and teamwork and, and leadership and change and a variety of things. But psychological safety, my earliest research, stumbled into its importance. I, I and others and with colleagues had done many studies along the way. So it was something I thought about a lot, was, was passionate about, and then 
became the Google study and uh, that you that you just mentioned. And in the aftermath of that study, and especially in the aftermath of Charles Duhigg's great article about it in the New York Times in 2016, I was noticing a great deal of attention to the concept. Mm-hmm. You know, on, in, in in blogs and in in um, uh, people talking about it in companies and. All of this attention included both some very thoughtful insights that people were having and writing about and many misunderstandings. So I thought it might be a good idea to, you know, sit down and write the book on psychological safety. Even though it wasn't a brand new idea, not to me, not to the world, but it was, um, it just seemed that it was, the time was right to put what we have learned in one place. Right. So I'm trained originally as a psychologist, and I had certainly heard the expression psychological safety, you know, for most of my adult life in some form or another, mostly all in counseling kind of formats. Um, But it wasn't a common word in the business vernacular until the Google study. At least that's my memory of it. All of a sudden, this very psychological counseling therapy word is in and popular and everybody's talking about it. So for those of us who haven't read everything, how do you define psychological safety? What does that mean to you? First of all, I completely agree with your observation. It was not, this was not something that was being talked about much in the business world. Um, and I think there's you know, lots of good reasons for that. And as you say, it was, this is a term that has its origins in psychology and probably especially in clinical psychology where people need to have a safe environment to explore and, and, and go deeper. And, um, and, and, and yet, in many ways, the connotation or the connection to the clinical environment could be a little bit misleading for the business environment because we're not talking about... When I talk about psychological safety in the workplace, I'm not talking about... Um, a kind, you know, a kind of a clinical setting at all, and right. and so let me, um, as you asked, give you the definition that I that I that I used, which is psychological safety is a climate characterized by a sense of willingness to be open, right, with questions, with concerns, with disagreement, you know, with observations of any kind. So it's essentially a sense of felt permission for candor which sounds simple enough, but of course is not the norm in most organizations. Yeah. And we're not talking about now this willingness to be open with questions and concerns. We're not talking about my willingness to tell you everything that's happened in my life and my deep psychological composition. We're talking about willingness to be open about the work that we are collectively trying to do together. Exactly, and the story you just told about a you know a senior management team that um, wants to be open, the leader wants everyone to be open, and yet no one mentions something that they believe to be a really important work-related topic because they were afraid of the consequences. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm, and what I'm what I'm fascinated by, as I think you are as well, is just how often this happens in the modern workplace. You know, in a sense, we behave in a way that is at odds with what we know would be most effective because of some kind of constraints that just drive us, often without our conscious attention. Right? We're just thinking, oh, I can't say that. 
and then you, you know, when probed, when I said, well, I'm, I'm worried about the consequences. But then when probed further, and I really step back to think about it, you know, I've, I've done interviews where people would say, well, I wouldn't have spoken up with that good, you know, this idea I had for improving the process. Well, why not? Well, you know, I got kids in college. And, you know, <laughs> at first glance, that's a completely nonsensical reply, but we all know what he's talking about. He's saying, I just can't afford to lose this job. So in a sense, our brains are often equating the possibility, if I speak up and you don't love you being my boss, you don't love what I just said, I might lose my job. And yet when I probe them further, you know, nearly everyone recognizes that they actually would not lose their job if they said something unpopular. But there's something, you know, a, a deeper sense of programming that leads us to be overly concerned about how we come across right. to the detriment of excellence, you know, to the detriment of doing good work. Because in today's world, doing good work means speaking up with ideas, even when you're not confident they're exactly spot on, or speaking up with a question when you don't know how to do something. I mean, all of those kinds of small behaviors are mission critical to excellence in a you know uncertain right. dynamic world right I have two reactions to this one. First one is this notion of climate. You started with psychological safety as mm. climate, a sense of willingness to be open with questions, concerns, ideas, doubts, etc. If you think about what is currently being written around culture, for example, we're talking mm-hmm. about in effect the stories that people tell each other, largely around what you don't do around here. So the stories we tell are people who got in trouble for doing or saying something and therefore the implications for what we do to avoid that stuff. And I think it's those stories that create the sense of, oh, you can't challenge that person. or Oh, you know, you better make sure you have your idea fully fleshed out before you speak up or, oh, whatever. So I find it fascinating. You're seeing climate and then the, the dialogue around culture uh-huh. and organizations is also saying some of the same thing. Uh-huh. Um, I want to go now to my second point, which is really around leaders and the role of leaders. And one of my favorite CEOs of all time I've spoken about a bunch of times talked as he grew up in the organization, had some people was very, very, very close to in the organization. But the moment he took over as CEO, people stopped telling him the hard messages. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. because he changed. It was something about their belief that suddenly it wasn't okay to tell him as the CEO that he just screwed up in a major way. So isn't it interesting, the assumptions we make about what is and isn't okay? And it's in the pure emotional space. This is not, we're not talking rational commentary. Right, right. As soon as someone has a very, you know, elevated position in some social hierarchy, our, our brains just click into gear, you know, save face, don't insult, you know, compliment the boss. You know, it's just, it's almost... Um, you know, it's almost automatic, but of course it can, like so many almost automatic behaviors, it can be overridden, right. you know, with, with discipline. So I think I think the experience of the person you're describing is very typical, and it's the wise leader who recognizes it, because I think many leaders don't recognize that shift. You know, they become, they, they get a promotion, they become the CEO, they become, you name it, the, the top boss, and they are not fully aware that 
they're not hearing what's really going on. So it's the wise leader who who knows, hmm, you know, I might no longer be the recipient of the straight scoop, and I've got to go out of my way to override those instincts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've seen, like the team that I started with, the leader knew about this particular problem. But can't, I mean, there's only so much action you can take on it if you can't get your team to actually talk about it as a team. It's interesting. And it was right. part of the reason. Anyway, fascinating. Your okay. Job. It can't be your job to have to bring up every item. You know, you've got right. to create the conditions because you'll be, you'll miss things and you, you'll, you're a fallible human being like, you know, like all of us. Yeah. So the team needs to be kind of um, empowered to to bring things up and to know, you know, to know, for example, that you believe when I'm not hearing about problems, it doesn't mean there aren't problems. It means, you know, we're not doing our job. Right. Fair enough. All right, Amy, let's go backwards. I want to go back and talk about your research because you've been studying teams for decades a short number of decades, yeah. but for a really long time. So um, what is it that your research is, I mean, give us the highlights of what you've discovered or what you now know or believe about teams from all of that research. Sure. Well, I think the most important thing about teams is that, and I'm not alone in, in observing this, but the most important thing about teams these days is that the, the boundaries are falling apart. I mean, when, when we studied teams 20 years ago, we really were looking for classic teams in the workplace, which meant an interdependent group of people who worked together over some period of time on a shared goal. And and the, the boundedness meant that membership was clear and crisp. And, you know, you're on that team and you're working on that on that task uh, together. And that's, that's a team. And it started, you know, years ago when I was doing research on teams and teamwork in healthcare delivery and I realized this was it was really challenging from a research perspective because the boundaries were so utterly porous and flexible and changing all the time. I mean I'm on, I'm working with these five people now and an hour later I'll be working with someone else and there's shift changes and 24/7 operations and and all of that. So I began to find it harder and harder in the in really dynamic workplaces to find the kinds of intact teams that are easy to study. So I found okay. myself having to, you know, shift to find ways to study teaming instead, you know, teaming as a verb. Mm-hmm. And and so the the kind of dynamic, porous, fluid nature of, of teamwork is 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 one observation. And a and a closely related second observation is just how very challenging that is. You know, it's a lot easier to work on a team with people you know well, you know their strengths and weaknesses, you um, understand what their skills are that they bring so that you can access them in a, in a kind of useful way. And so, you know, so A, more and more need for this kind of work, and then B, gee, this is hard to do. So how do we, you know, how do we understand those barriers and then um, what are some of the factors that help people overcome those barriers? That's a, a very interesting observation because I look at that, I hadn't thought about it that way in terms of teaming, but I had thought that in terms of what it means to lead. 
that I think mm-hmm. you you ha- are leading now, meaning you're accountable for the results of a group of people that's very ambiguous who the group is and who has accountability and responsibility for what in that group. So I've looked at it from the leadership point of view, but not necessarily from the team dynamic point of view. And clearly you can say, you know, watching even an intact team 20 years ago, changing a team member threw all the dynamics out of whack. You sort of had to start all over again with one change. I can't imagine how complicated that is in the porous, dynamic, teeming environments you're seeing. So are you finding things that make for success? Yeah, so, you know, it puts a very high premium on interpersonal skill and um, what I I call, you know, relating and, and... if I'm going to be teaming up with relative strangers, I'm going to have to very quickly get up to speed. I mean, very quickly on just the simplest things. So as you said earlier, psychological safety isn't about sharing my deepest, darkest secrets. It's about sharing work-relevant, you know, information and ideas. And, and, and similarly, getting up to speed with someone you have to quickly coordinate and collaborate with means... What's the goal? What are you up against? And what do you bring? I mean, I think it's really that simple. And so that's one of the things that I've been looking at is how do people sort of, um, and it, of course, takes a little bit of psychological safety and courage to be willing to share those three things. But it's it's very important to help people get up to speed quickly because there's lots of room for misunderstanding. Um, we fill in a vacuum quickly, meaning uh, mm. if I don't know something about what you're trying to do or what you're up against, I'll very quickly assume some things, and some of them may not be flattering, right? So it's better for mm-hmm. you to tell me what you're really thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so kind of quickly learning, in fact, you can think of this as, you know, learning to relate effectively in, in, mm-hmm. in a work-relevant context, you know, learning to learn, because I have to sort of quickly find out what I need to know uh, to, to work with you, um, and, and, you know, to some extent, le- learning to choose, learning to uh, pick your battles and, and pick, your, pick your goals, and, and uh, make, making that a quite discussable, thoughtful process. Well, right. Boy, do we not do that one well. Um, I, yeah. You know, this notion, I like your three, that the three things I really need to know in this sort of more porous dynamic environment, if I'm going to work with you, is what's a goal? What are you up against? Meaning, what are you challenged mm-hmm. by and time-wise, priority-wise, everything? And then what do you bring? What, do you bring? what can I yeah. count on you on? Three good starting points. And I, you're yeah. right. And, you know, I think as each one is slightly more, requires slightly more vulnerability to share than the prior one. I mean, it's pretty easy to say, here, this is what I need to get done. This is what I'm trying to get done. This is what I'm working on. Um, slightly more challenging to say, oh, here's what I'm up against. Like, I'm, a, you know, here are the hurdles I see. Uh, and then for many people, even more challenging or require more vulnerable to say, uh, oh, yeah, and here, here's, here are my strengths. Here's what I bring. Here are my capabilities. Yeah. All right. And then to be able to, I like those last three, that the skills are learning to relate quickly, Mm 
learning to learn, meaning I've got to come up the curve on something quickly, not in depth of expertise, but in enough to be a contributor, and then learning Mm -hmm. to choose, whether that's battles or goals or priorities. All of those make a ton of sense to me. Okay, so if that's what it takes to team... And we all know that we're driving for this world of collaboration and bringing others along and all of that stuff. What is it we need to be doing that's going to create a more psychologically safe, a better performance, I guess I should say, at the end of the day? Well, I think it starts by understanding why, you know, I guess either why or that interpersonal fear is so common that in, in okay. a sense that that is the default, especially in a hierarchy. So, you know, the default state is I'm going to hold back, right? If I'm uncertain about something, if I don't know what, what that the reaction will be positive to something that's in my head, I will hold back. That's the default. And so, um, you know, sort of recognizing this is a really important issue because we are leaving value on the table every day. So then mm-hmm. kind of recognizing that this matters. This isn't a sort of, this isn't a nice to have, this isn't an employee perk. This is um, really mission critical to achieving excellence in a, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. And And so the first thing, I would say on how do you do it is exactly that, pointing out early and often that we are in a complex, uncertain, ambiguous world. In other words, um, reminding ourselves, because again, I think the default is people assume there's a kind of um, a right answer and right targets and you're supposed to just do your job, you know, <laughs> by the book. And, and of course, more and more tasks today just don't have a by the book. You know, they require ingenuity and creativity and and um, innovation uh, to to do a really good job. So um, I call this setting the stage, but setting the stage by um, making sure we're all clear that yeah, you know, there's so much uncertainty and and so much um, you know so many things that that could go right or could go wrong we've got to be far more transparent than is strictly speaking normal and so that's really the you know the first part is just constantly um, being clear and transparent about the nature of the context and the nature of the work we do okay and this yep go ahead no good i i that makes a lot of sense to me um, they're very so yeah. right? It's saying, yeah, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to sort of ask a question, but and I know it's hard to offer an idea that might or might not work. And guess what? That's what we need okay. because of this funny context in which we now find ourselves. And that right. stage setting is really, you know, I think it's really important because in some ways it allows us to have a little bit more of a sense of humor and just to, you know, when we were on the same page about what we're up against, we know that the, the, the sort of tacit idea that I'm supposed to be perfect is silly, right? That's just not, nobody's going to be able to be perfect in this, uh, in, in today's environment. So it gives ourselves, it's essentially giving us permission and a rationale for lowering the threshold for voice, for speaking up. And and yet, 
that's not enough, of course. I mean, I can set the, I can set the stage. I can sort of remind people. I really, you know, we really are serious about this. We're serious about about voice and and transparency and and naming those elephants in the room and all of that. Um, and yet, that's still not easy for most people. And so, uh, the second thing that I um, have looked at a lot is. Very simple, you know, painfully, embarrassingly simple, really, but it's the need to ask questions. And mm-hmm. actually, it's interesting to me that this, this topic of inquiry and asking questions is also getting renewed attention, yeah. which I think is wonderful. I mean, there's, there's some, you know, some good writing out there today about, you know, the and Peter Drucker said it years ago that, you know, that being a great manager isn't about having great answers, it's about having great questions. And mm-hmm. so the simple act of asking good questions, just as you're doing uh, here, mm-hmm. is, is remarkably powerful. Because if you ask me a question, I would feel mighty awkward just sitting here mute, right? It just would be, you know, not done. So yeah. you ask me a question, so by, that, by its very nature, you're eliciting my voice. Right. And so why don't we see more of that? You know, most managers are, are, you know, 95% of their utterances are, you know, statements or leading questions and very little of it are sort of kind of genuine question that signals, gee, I really am interested in what you're thinking. And now I'm going to be quiet and listen. Yeah. I find when leaders go to ask questions... And they will intentionally ask a question, knowing that this is the right thing to do. You know, everything's there. But the Mm. question is so open that nobody knows where to begin, and you're not even sure they mean it. So I can set the stage, and I can say this is really important, and we're up against it, and no one has all the answers, and this is a place where we need to experiment, and, 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 and I need all of your ideas. So what do you think? For example, it's a kind of mid-range question, right? There's the yeah. there's the um, leading question that says, you know, this is what we should do, don't you think? You know? Yeah. And then there's the, gee, what's on your mind? And and the mid-range questions in the middle are the kind you want. And what they do is that they focus us on something that matters, something relevant. They give people room to respond, um, and and they 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 signal that careful thought is is um, called for, right? So, the, and so it's targeted. And it's, uh, so it might be, you know, if we, if we went in this direction, what do you think might happen? And you can see how that's targeting, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sorry, I'm just turning, um, how that's targeting a specific um, issue. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or even, you know, we're on this issue, we're talking about some decision, and then I say, um, what are we missing here? Does anyone have some very different alternatives? Or who has a different alternative that might help us uh, think about this differently? So there, I, I'm, I'm illustrating um, this phenomenon of these mid-range questions that are focused enough to keep us on topic, uh, but not, um, you know, not, not so focused to, as to have only really one required answer. Yeah. That's, um, I think that takes skill. I think there's some formulaic processes. So the, you know, what are we missing is one of the formulaic. 
uh, questions that you can ask. And if we go with this one, what might happen next? Or what will the response be? Or what will the consequences be? Or how will our competitors respond? Those kind of anticipating reactions are yes and formulate just small tweaks like how might you know yeah. how might our competitors react because that signals um, that we don't know we don't know yeah. and your guess is as good as mine right let's let's think it through let's think it through aloud okay versus um, viewing it as something deterministic yeah. uh, do you have a favorite resource on questions Amy Favorite book? Um, you know, there's there's um, there's Hal Gregerson's new book. I think is um, is very good, and I'm forgetting the exact title, but it's pretty brand new. Okay. Um, maybe it's the Art of Questions or something like that. Uh, my original training in questions uh, came from uh, Chris Argerus, who really yeah. was one of the early scholars to point out just how much of management um, talk were statements, not questions. And, and he, of course, um, ab- ab- argued and observed that this is very counterproductive because it inadvertently, for the most part, it's not deliberate for the same way people don't deliberately choose fear. People don't deliberately choose to you know, silence others' input. Right. But we do accidentally by making statements because right. the statement doesn't invite right. or by asking a question that is leading or so open-ended, you're, it's a signal or people interpret it as a signal that you don't really want to know what I think. Exactly. Okay. In fact, we're going to take a share transcripts with, you know, classrooms full of executives or even MBA students, transcripts of real meetings and say, okay, what's happening here? And, and nine times out of 10, someone will raise their hand and and make an attribution about intentions, right? They'll say, oh, well, she's trying to shut him down. And, of course, you know, we have no idea what, whether she's trying to do that or not. All, we, but we do have a very good idea because we can all, we've all been there. We can see that her behavior is having the effect of shutting him down, right? It's loud and clear. But that makes us immediately uh, kind of infer that it's deliberate when... Most of the time, it really is not deliberate. It's just a lack of skill. Yeah, yeah. So this is this takes a lot more work because people react in different ways. All right, Amy, um, it's fascinating. So let me just first say Hal Gregerson's book. We think it's called The Art of Questions, but if you follow me on Twitter at Ask Wanda, I'll make sure I post the title of that book for anybody who's interested in it. And I would also say I'm a big fan of Frank Sesno's Um I think it's called The Art of Questions or something like that. I should even know that title. I'll tweet that one as well for anybody who wants to know the details. It will be posted. So, Amy, if I listen to all of this and I try to summarize it back, the whole notion of psychological safety is creating a climate where there's a sense of willingness to be open with my questions, concerns, ideas, and doubts. It's giving myself permission to be candid And we know that that doesn't happen in teams nearly often enough. And when it does, we're best prepared for all the crazy VUCA worlds that we're involved in and more. And the best of ideas in innovation, which comes back to your original concept. 
Also, the notion that teams are more porous than ever, meaning the boundaries are not so clear anymore. Who's on the team, who's off the team, who's a core contributor, who's an ancillary, who's moving in and out, who's changing. It's just flexible in ways we've not seen historically. And that requires us to be phenomenally effective as team members in coming up the curve and learning to relate quickly, learning to learn quickly, some parts, not everything, and learning Mm -hmm. to choose battles, goals, and priorities. I just have one more thing from yours that I need to repeat, which is the three questions we have to answer in order to do teaming. One is, what's the goal? Two, what are you up against? And three, what do you bring? I also have to say, what am I up against and what do I bring? And those require some safety. Lovely. And I also do think it's important that you ask before you explain. Ah, And of course, someone's got to go first. But if you're initiating some um, collaborative moment, um, start with a question. Right. Okay. Fabulous. And we talked about leaders and the role of leaders asking good questions that sort of elicits that I really want to hear. So my guest today is Amy Edmondson. The book that we've been talking about is The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. And as you've heard me say, Amy is a professor at Harvard Business School um, in leadership and management, and she has a number of books out there on teaming in a variety of places. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to pick up a bit on what it is that we need to do as leaders to ensure that we have psychological safety. We've talked about two of them. And I want to know what we do as individuals on teams to make a safer environment for candidness and honesty. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Amy Edmondson, and the book we've been talking about is The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Um, As I reflect on the last segment, the thing that is still striking me is this notion about porous teams and how much, you know, we may have a, a couple of people clearly committed to the team and on the team for the going time but we have so many people coming out of teams that it's very hard to have a sense of where the boundary is for the team and then as amy said that creates all sorts of challenges for us particularly when we know that psychological safety is such an important factor in driving performance for the team and the innovation and the growth and the ultimate success of what we set that team out to do and it puts pressure on a team members and leaders to come up the curve really, really quickly in relating, as Amy had said. Now, I want to talk for a minute about the Im- um, impact of fear. So the research has been really clear about that. And we've talked a little bit about how people withhold ideas or they don't say what they're really thinking. You don't get that breakthrough. Are there other pieces we need to know about what the research is saying on the impact of fear? Yes, and you know, I want to distinguish between sort of fear in general and the research, neuroscience, not my research, but it's pretty clear that fear in general constricts information processing and, 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 um, you know, memory uh, formation and it just, it literally harms your ability to do good thinking and engage in analytic problem solving. So, you know, fear is not your friend when you're trying to do challenging kinds of knowledge work. Um, And then, of course, my small part in this landscape is interpersonal fear. And so increasingly I find myself having to distinguish between fear in general and also fear, the kinds of fear that you could almost argue is healthy, like, you know, fear of missing a deadline. Like, yeah, we should all be a little bit afraid of missing a deadline and, and, you know, buckle up and work hard and do what we can. Um, And interpersonal fear, which I want to argue is almost never productive. And and so the, the consequences of interpersonal fear in organizations are such things as a lack of truth telling. And, and and I don't you know, I don't mean I mean just simple non reporting of what's really going on, leading especially higher ups to have a an overly rosy view of Reality that doesn't help them and doesn't help uh, the organization, doesn't help them make good decisions. So sort of a lack of truth-telling. And um, that lack of truth-telling can lead to 
preventable failures, both business kinds of failures and safety, you know, uh, human safety or human dignity kinds of failures. You know, when people are find themselves afraid to speak up about something that they see that, you know, might not be working or might be wrong and they just feel they can't speak up about it, then the organization is at risk um, for, for, for both small and oftentimes much larger failures, visible reputational failures. And then finally, the other consequence of fear is, is um, or interpersonal fear especially, is are lost opportunities. You know, it's that, that wonderful creative idea you had that you didn't share. It might have led to a fabulous new product or service down the line. And, and so there are, there's a clear impact for, for innovation. <laughs> yeah, I have a fabulous story on this one. I can't resist telling Amy. I think I've told it so many times. The guy was in one of my high-tech companies, young, out of mm-hmm. college, uh, master's in engineering, you know, having just studied this big science around this process in engineering. He takes it to his high-tech company and says, look, we should be in this world. And his boss arranges for him to make a presentation to the senior executive team, and he does, and mm-hmm. it didn't go very well. Um, not too surprisingly, because he probably wasn't prepared yeah. for that uh, properly. Yeah. Walking out of the yeah. room, and it happens, right? It just happens. Bad timing. Um, He walks out of the room and his boss claps him on the back and says, "Um, okay, Jose, uh, that was a disaster. Nothing nothing more positive than that. And then the net result is the guy got out of research as fast as he could get out, dropped that idea, never, ever came back to it again. And three years later, that company was behind the eight ball because a competitor had actually managed to achieve that. Wow. Right. Okay. I mean, it doesn't get any more crisp than that. And then and there are some more subtle things, too. I mean, just in a general sense, you know, the, the research, obviously, we're all very interested in diversity and inclusion um, nowadays and, and you know, for important reasons. And, you know, the research literature is mixed. You know, is diversity helpful or not helpful for performance? And it's one of those simple things, really, that, of course, it's helpful, but only if you can get the benefits of diversity because you're actually hearing the diverse perspectives, ideas, and backgrounds, and so on that that people bring. And so if there isn't psychological safety, there's essentially no way to really leverage those benefits, and instead we just have, you know, the potential for misunderstanding and, and, and some of the challenges of working with diverse others. So it's, you know, there's, there's sort of small and large things, but that is really a... Um, a very, very good story. Okay. All right. So then let's, so we see the impact of fear. And again, I like your three distinctions, not the healthy fear about missing a deadline, for example. And we talked about the general fear. So the neuroscience of general fear is that it stops our analytical problem solving, our cognitive brain from working. Mm-hmm. And then the interpersonal fear that leads to not telling the truth and that leads to failures and that leads to lost opportunities. Okay. So I want to turn now for what does a team leader do? And you've already mentioned two things. One is about setting the stage. And mm-hmm. two is about asking questions. What We're else really is it that'll in doing that? Yeah. Okay. Say more. Well, so in many ways, the most important thing of all is 
how do you respond? Um, and this is where a little bit of wisdom and a little bit of emotional intelligence comes in because how do you respond when someone comes to you with bad news? Or like the story you just told, you know, when someone gives a presentation that you believe was not effective, you know, what do you say? What's your response? And my argument is your response needs to be productive. Now, it's hard to disagree with, you know, the desire for a productive response. So the next question is, what is a productive response? And guess what? It's never, gee, that was a disaster. Because all that does, it doesn't do any good, and it does potentially do the harm of leading that person to leave the field, leave the organization, never speak up again, or what have you. And so a productive response, I would argue, is has... has always has the following feature. It expresses in some, maybe subtle, maybe overt way, appreciation for the offering. If it, so the offering meaning, you know, I ask a question, oh, thanks for asking, it's a good question. See, it's just a small little thing. Or the reporting of bad news. I say, thank you for that clear line of sight. Or It's just a, it's a kind of micro-reward of appreciating the small effort it might take to do those kinds of things. But just think about what a, what a difference that makes compared to the story you told. It's got to be, you've got to be always aware of the shadow of the future. And the shadow of the future is my, you know, the, the, the yelling or insulting I do right now will affect your future behavior, like it or not. And so I've got to be as, as aware of the future as I am of the present when I'm, you know, in a position of leadership. And so I say, thank you. You know, thanks for that clear line of sight. And then I might say something like, what can I do to help? Or what thoughts do you have about what we might try next? You know, I'm, I'm then opening up a conversation again. So I'm sort of iterating back to inquiry and inviting participation. Okay. Um, last week's show with Murray Nosel, Murray said that people who are not skilled, meaning they're just mm-hmm. learning, respond better to um, compliments, positive, things yeah. that you've done well. Yeah. yeah. And people who are experts, they're already skilled, respond well, learn most from the criticism, and they're prepared to take it in a different way. And I don't mean, let me tell you everything you did wrong. I mean, as in, let's focus on how else we could have done this that would have led to an even better result. But I found that as a fascinating distinction, and it's not inconsistent with what you're saying here. It just adds another level of nuance that I want to respond productively so that the other person moves forward with it as opposed to moves backward. Is that fair summary? And when you think about it, the job of a manager or a team leader is always to be, you know, um, responsible for how well we get done that which we need to get done. And and so if I'm, um, you know, I I can respond any which way I want, but not all of them are equally productive in terms of accomplishing our shared goals. And I like that nuance. I mean, I think for experts, experts are those who, you know, have enough of the basics that they're eager to get that additional information. And yet, all criticism isn't good criticism. I mean, right. saying that presentation was a disaster is not good criticism. That doesn't help an expert or a novice. Right, you know, right. Saying that presentation was unclear, I didn't understand what the key message was, and I was a little confused by the fourth slide, 
that's helpful. Yeah. So specific then. But again, targeted to where what the individual is prepared to receive. Okay, so if I just summarize this one, what's a leader to do to reduce the level of fear and increase the psychological safety and the chance that people will tell you the things you need to hear? One is about setting the stage. None of us are perfect. This is a crazy, Mm -hmm. changing world. Two is asking questions, good middle ground questions that are not leading nor so open-ended they don't get anywhere. And then three is this notion of responding productively to bad news in one form or another that starts with some version of appreciation and then takes it a step further from that. Anything else you would say a leader should do? I I mean, I think the, the thread that runs through all three is a kind of a continuous emphasis on on why, right, on purpose. Not just why we need to hear from you, but but why it matters that we do the best possible job. You know, why it matters that we show up as the best versions of ourselves. Because, in other words, it is so important to keep reconnecting people to the shared purpose or mission. Because a lot of what I'm talking, when we're talking about psychological safety and fear, we're talking about the various ways in which people put the brakes on their own contributions, mm-hmm. put the brakes on their abilities. But we're not talking about the fuel that drives the car until we, you know, get into purpose and, you know, why, why, why should I care? You know, because it's always going to be easier to hold back. And so, so I think the other really leadership responsibility is just to keep, you know, keep emphasizing that what we do matters. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Absolutely, totally fair, because you see that when you've got that sense of purpose, shared mission, loosely or or concretely defined, that's what Mm. makes it willing for me to take a risk. I believe in the purpose strongly enough that I'm willing to take a small risk, and that's where I'm going to not put the brakes on. I'm going to let up a little bit. All right. So, Amy, let's shift the gears. Let's say I'm an average ordinary team member. And I have a manager of this team who's maybe attentive, maybe not, maybe skilled, maybe not so skilled, but not doing the kind of things that you've just outlined. What can I do as a team member that's going to help diminish the fear among my teammates? Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it is true, of course, that bosses have an outsized role in creating psychological safety. But the, the reality is anyone can help. Right? Anyone can help. And sometimes all you have to do is ask a good question, right? Because any one of us can ask either the team leader or each other a good question. Oh, what do you see? And if it's motivated by or at least appears to be motivated by genuine curiosity, um, it gives someone, maybe may, maybe several people, but at least one individual, a voice. It gives them that small stage for a moment where where you are saying, I'd really love to hear from you. And you know, you've conveyed a kind of interest in what they have to say. And that's just so important. So it's really um, about recognizing you don't have to be a leader to exercise leadership. And I do think it's a leadership task to create and and reinforce the kind of uh, climate that we need to do our best work. And so if no one else is doing it, you can do it. And And simple things, you know, a lot of, in addition to questions, simple 
phrases like, I don't know, or I need help, or I'm sorry, or, or powerful. Right? Those are the kinds of things that make us all a little bit more human. If you're willing to be human, the chances are I'll be willing to be human as well. Okay. So the, the things that make us human, and again, we come back to this notion of not perfect. Right. Because there's no way we're going to be perfect in the pace and everything that we're moving today with all the changes and the chaos that we've already spoken about. That's an environment in which perfection is hard to achieve. We can't get the processes buttoned down. So to be able to ask a question on the team that shows a genuine curiosity, I always use the word gentle curiosity, a, an interest in what the person has to stay, mm-hmm. a voice. And then Mm -hmm. two, to be human, by to admit, I don't know, or I need help, or I'm sorry, or I'm confused. Offering and inviting, or inviting and offering. You know, you're inviting Mm -hmm. others, and you're offering something of yourself. Now, if you're really feeling afraid and constrained, you are going to be in a hard, it's going to be harder to do the offering than the inviting. Um, But what uh, my experience, when people take these smaller Risks, you know, they're they're willing to just go slightly outside the comfort zone. They then um, find that, in fact, no, I didn't die. I didn't get fired. You know, I'm I'm still here. And in fact, more often than not, people will be showing their their appreciation. So glad you said that. Yeah. Great. Yes, I like that. Inviting others, giving them the voice, the stage, the opportunity, and then offering something of yourself. And we've talked about this in terms of the vulnerability of I don't know um, or Or I'm unclear. Can I do something? Yeah, can I I do anything to help? What a wonderful sentence. Can I do anything to help? Yeah. Wow. Now that you think, well, I can't think of anything, and it really feels good to... That you said that. Yeah. makes That makes a lot of sense to me. And it, well, and also keeps you from taking on the responsibility for whatever the person is just thrown out there. You sort of say, what do you want from me? Or how can I help you? Um, what right. is it that you need next? Okay, yeah, Amy, yeah. we've got about two minutes before we close. Any last mm-hmm. piece of advice for anybody looking to create an environment with more psychological safety, less fear, for the purposes of improving innovation, growth, and learning? You know, I think the wonderful thing you can do is just look around and note what you see. You know, how are, how are customers feeling? How are your colleagues feeling? Just taking note of what you see and then asking clarifying questions just goes such a long way to helping people kind of roll up their sleeves and work together. I really think that, you know... Fear is obviously not going to go away in any absolute sense, but shared fear is rarely destructive. You know, if we're all like, wow, we've got this really challenging project and we've got to work on it together and, you know, we're, we're in it together, that's okay. But if I feel alone, it's not okay. Wow. That is a powerful statement. I'm not sure I can say anything about that other than, wow, that's important. Let me just repeat this one. The fear is here to stay. It's not going away. There's good reason for it. It's not going to shift. Mm-hmm. The world's not going to become a nice, solvable place. But that shared fear is rarely a problem. When I have the feeling that we're in it together, we dig mm-hmm. in and find ways to move forward. Right? 
but it's when you are a fear alone that it's so destructive. Exactly. Wow. So that would invite then as colleagues around is noticing exactly as you said, how are people feeling, who's afraid, and talking about my own fears. I would imagine that if I'm a little more forthcoming about my concerns, that that would encourage other people to do the same. It unlocks something. It's just incredible. And haven't you ever noticed, you know, someone says, gee, I'm really worried about this. And then suddenly you take a deep breath and feel, yeah, I am too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's some great examples about that one. Okay. All right, Amy, sadly, we are out of time. So my guest today is Amy Edmondson. Amy's a professor at the Harvard Business School in leadership and management. She's got a number of books on teaming, but the one we've been talking about today, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. And this is a this whole notion of psychological safety is a new one for the business world to encounter, though it's not new. And it's really about creating that climate where people do offer of themselves both their observations, their concerns, their doubts, and their ideas. Amy, what great insight from this one. Um, and thank you for being a guest. And join it us next week. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Amy. Join us next week for another episode and getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh,